But first, I want to talk about uh, first day of school just happened for my little kiddo. And me and my husband, Ryan, made a really big decision to move my middle schooler uh, from his last school to this new school that we are hoping would be a lot better for him. And it was a big decision because he's going into seventh grade, so we're moving him right in the middle of middle school. You know, and, and the school that he was going to before was very small. It was about 400, 500 students that, would, that ranged from like kindergarten to, to eighth grade. And this new middle school is 1,100 students. And they're just middle schoolers. And the building, the, the place is huge. I mean, this new school's, the gym is almost as big as his entire old school. So he has like all these buildings to go to and he's trying to figure all this stuff out and we just felt, you know what, he needs more. We need to move from this, from this one place to this next place. We had all these conversations with him. And if you've ever met him, Jaron, he is 12 now. He's almost as tall as me. We wear the same shoe size, so I'm hoping that he gets some really great tennis shoes soon so we can share. Um, but he is very compassionate very loving, very sensitive to the spirit. Anytime somebody is like, it's hurting or, or not feeling well, he'll volunteer to pray. Like he's just, and even if you don't say it, he'll come up to you and be like, are you okay? Are you all right? Very aware of the world and, and just, I love him to pieces. Um, but because of that, because he's kind of like sensitive and knowing, and we were just really trying to make sure that not only was he prepared with his uniforms and his school supplies and all that stuff, but he was also prepared mentally uh, to engage into this new school that was like a, a big deal. Um, and so the first day of school came, and he was a little anxious, a little nervous, um, but he was excited. He was like, I think I'm ready for a new start. You know, I'm ready. I'll, I'll see. You know, his best friend, Leo, was also going to that school, so he's like, my ride or die is with me, so we'll, we'll, we'll make it happen, right? And I was proud. I was proud. I had butterflies in my stomach. I will confess, because we're going to do confession again today. I had butterflies in my stomach, because I was like, oh my gosh, this school is going to swallow this little boy up. Let's just get him through the first day, you know? So um, he is having a great day. He has lunch, and he goes to his sixth period class. And that's when everything kind of fell apart. Uh, in, in his sixth period class, uh, somebody opens up the door and throws Jaron's lunchbox on the teacher's desk. Something about Jaron you also don't know. He is very forgetful a little absent-minded. He kind of just lives the world like, okay, Jesus, what you want me to do? Where where you want me to go? I'm a, oh, wait, what? I, I, I was supposed to take my backpack to school? Oh, wait, I was supposed to brush my teeth? Wait, I was supposed to, you know, that's kind of how he lives. So he realizes, oh my gosh, that's my back, my, that's my lunchbox. So he gets up out of his seat and he starts walking to the front of the classroom. But at the same time, I think the teacher was a little annoyed that somebody threw the lunchbox on her desk. So she grabs it and she gives it to a student who she thought it was for. So Jaron sees this, my little middle schooler, quickly turns around and goes back to his seat. But all the people in that section saw him, that saw him get up, they started laughing at him. And if you know middle school, you, you just need one person to start laughing. And everybody starts laughing. So he puts his head down on the desk, and he, he tells me later, he just said, I felt so embarrassed. I just felt so embarrassed. And he's like, I don't know any of these students. I don't know any of these kids. I feel so embarrassed. And he puts his head down, and I can just imagine all the thoughts that were going through his head. 
And so the teacher is doing roll call, and she gets to his name, and she's like, I don't want to mispronounce it. Who is this person? She's trying to spell it out. And Jaron, um, from my understanding, did not respond as quickly as she wanted, and she started snapping at him. And by the time he looked up with more embarrassment and more shame, she didn't see that in him. She didn't see the embarrassment. She didn't see the shame. She said he was being aggressive, that he was being disrespectful, and that she felt threatened by him. I thought I was ready for the first day of school, but I wasn't ready. All the work I did to prepare him, all the talks we had, all the prayers that we did before in the laying of hands before he left did not matter in that moment because I thought I had more time. I thought I had more time before the world saw my little black boy as a threat. I thought I had more time before the world looked at him and saw him as a scary black man. I thought I had more time because I was not ready for that on the first day of school. I thought I had more time to, to get ready for this evil that strips black men and black boys of their dignity, worse. And in many cases, their lives, I thought I had more time, but the reality was my family was already under attack. And I remember crying when I got home. He wasn't home yet, and I, I'm just dealing with this idea of, like, I thought I was ready. I thought I had more time, and I just felt like the Lord was like, your family's under attack, but everything else is also under attack. Your world is under attack. Your relationship with Jesus is under attack. Your health is under attack. Your friendships are under attack. And I wasn't ready. And the thing that I feel, the thing that keeps on stirring in me as I was preparing for this talk was, are you ready? Because the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world wants to come for your sons and your daughters too. They want to fracture your marriages, destroy your communities that you hold so dear to you. These spiritual forces of evil have come for this country and are coming for your microchurches and your finances and your worth and your bodies. Why? Because the same darkness that put Jesus on that cross is coming for you. And, and he's coming because we, you, you reflect the one who has conquered death and hell. You preach the gospel of the resurrected king of glory. You are taking that truth to the ends of the earth, to the ends of your neighborhood, to the ends of your street. So this world that is under siege will find victory in Jesus. That's you. That's what you're doing. So because of that, he is coming. But I don't know what makes you not ready. Maybe you think you have more time. Maybe, maybe there's some other reality where you just think, you know, the, the enemy is not really real. I come from a church background where we didn't get to talk about the enemy. We didn't say the devil at all, period. But when we did try to refer to darkness, we called him the enemy. But we wouldn't want to talk about the enemy because we didn't want to give the enemy too much power. 
And so we just kind of like swept him underneath my bed or kind of locked him up in a closet like, "Eh, you don't really exist. So some of us might be over here, right? Others of us come from church expressions where all we did was talk about the devil. He was in everything. He was everything. That's what we were fighting against every moment of the day. And it just left you fatigued and and, and just not even wanting to be bothered anymore. And maybe there's some others of us that don't come from church backgrounds. Maybe your first kind of uh, engagement with the devil was a cartoonish example of him with that Halloween red suit on and the, the horns and the tails and that pitchfork that's always kind of sitting on your left side of your shoulder, whispering stuff, like telling you, ooh, ooh, do that, ooh, ooh, do that. Ooh, 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 don't do that, don't do that. And if we're honest, this cartoon image has left a real uh, cynical feeling in you. I'm telling you, no matter where you're coming from, know that darkness is real and the fight is on. And you are in the middle of this battle, this battle that has been raging against the people of God for hundreds of years. You are in the middle of it. So I'll ask you again, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you armored up? Or are you focusing on the things that you can see? You know, the the tangible things that you can touch with your hands and the the things that you feel like you can attack and and the things that you want to like go to and, and build and be a part of, neglecting the fact that there's always something under the surface that you cannot see with your eyes. Look, when you, when you waste your time creating wrong plans for wrong problems, something is wrong. Because what is unseen is always controlling what can be seen. Is always controlling what can be seen. And at times, this is where we want to stay. We want to use our human rationale and our money and our time and our might to fight the evil things that we see over here. And and we may see some victory and we may see some change, but guess what? Before you can blink an eye, it comes up over here and it will come up over here and it will come up over here. Fighting a spiritual battle in your own might will leave you exhausted and still under attack. You need Jesus and the spiritual armor and the tools to fight this battle. Because it is unseen. So we, we need to lay down our, our physical messes and, and the ways and the tools that we try to bring to this battle. We need to lay them down. And we need to listen to what Paul is instructing his friends to do in Ephesians. Because he says to armor up and stand. Because the devil is out here scheming. He didn't say all of that, but that's how I'm saying it. The devil is out here scheming. And we, the children of God, we need to be ready. 
And a lot of you guys know that I worked for this ministry created uh, that works specifically with women caught in the sex industry. And every so often, there will be a pimp or a sugar daddy that was very upset that we had one of their girls. And so um, anytime we caught wind that somebody was looking for one of our created sisters, we would put this plan into place. We would, and, and if you're at the old, old hub, not the old hub that we just came, but the old, old hub, that's what we call it, right, on 7th, the old, old hub, you might have got a picture from us that says, like, let created know if you see this person, and we would have a picture of the person. We would have their car information, the make and model, the color, and we would post it around and we would let everybody in our community know, like, if you see this person, let us know. Call the police. And one of these uh, sugar daddies that was super obsessed with one of our women, his name was Bob. That was, this is his real name, Bob. If your name is Bob, this, I'm sorry. <clears throat> But we started figuring out that these weird calls and letters we were getting were coming from Bob. And so we, we got ready, right? We got ready. We put our plan in place, and we had his picture. I knew what car he drove. We even started taking different routes because we didn't want to get caught off guard. We didn't want him to follow us, but we also did not want him to know where we were going and when we were going. So we would switch up drop-off times and pick-up times. We would have different people pick up each other. It was organized. We were ready. But one morning I was coming out of the created house, locking it up, and I was about to walk down the steps, and this older black woman was passing by, didn't catch me off guard, and she just looked at me, smiled, I smiled back, I was trying to be pleasant that day, smiled back, and she stopped, and she's like, does Tracy live here? And I'm like, okay, this is a safe house, nobody's supposed to know who lives here. This is what I'm thinking in my mind. So I'm looking at her like, do I know who, who's this person? Did I see her from somewhere? How do I know her? And she's still walking, slowly, looking back. And I didn't respond, and she said it again. Well, does Tracy live here? I know her from so-and-so and so-and-so, and I was just wondering if she lives here. And so I like turned my head to the side, and I said, what's your name? And that smile that she had disappeared. She went cold. And I just said, I didn't hear what you said your name was. What was your name? And she like turned around and just started walking away. And I'm standing on the, the steps like, it's Bob. It is Bob. I jump in my car and I get in the car, turn, you know, turn around, get behind the building, and I see his car. The woman jumps in his car. <clears throat> so he drives off and I drive off after him. My husband hates when I tell this story. <laughs> I drive off after him, and I call the created office, and I'm like, Bob was at the house. He had this. Blah, 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 blah. I was like, I'm trying to get his license plate number because we're trying to do some police stuff, and they're like, we can't do anything. If you don't have this, if you don't have this, you don't have this. And one of the things we needed was his license plate number. So I'm like, I'm trying to get you the license plate number. So I'm like, F, can you hear? And they're like, four. And I'm like, F, five. And then we're going back and forth. And so finally, we got the license plate number, <clears throat> and there's a red light. And so I pull up next to him, because I'm going to turn, I'm aborting the mission, 
I'm aborting, right? I'm not, I'm not, I wanted to be FBI, but I'm too scary. So I can't be FBI, so I'm aborting the mission. I get in the lane, and I look over, and he's just there like, no, it's a beautiful day, like, and so, there was something inside of me, guys. I, I, I'm going to blame it on the Holy Spirit. I roll down my window. <laughs> and I say, Bob, Bob, roll down your window. And he's like, oh, me? Like, what? What are you? Roll down your window. And he... <laughs> this is not in the creative training. You should not do this. So he rolls down his window, and I said, don't you ever follow me again. Do you, don't you ever come to this house again. And he starts crying. And he's just like, but I love her. And, blah, blah, blah. and I said it again, like, like, hoped up. Like, don't ever follow me again, and don't ever come to this house again. And the light turned green, and I drove off. And then all of a sudden, I hear my phone, Keisha, Keisha, are you still there? And I'm like, oh, are you guys still here? Did you hear that? <laughs> I hang up. But I don't know if it was the fact that I thought that Bob, like Bob was scheming and planning and, and plotting against us. That did something to me that I was ready to fight back. And if you know me, I don't like to fight. I don't like to fight. I'm scary. Fight or flight, you already know. Flight. Give me that boarding pass. But there was something in that moment that, that I was willing to speak up, that I wasn't afraid to chase him out of our neighborhood. I was willing to, to stand up to Bob. But Bob wasn't the problem. The enemy was. Because the devil is always the root of all the problems. He's the one that's saying, you know what, Bob, it's okay to enslave women and sell their bodies for money. And he's the one that comes to us and sows division among us. He's the one that comes and, and causes dissension to happen among us. He's the one that, that causes jealousy, that we look at one another and be like, oh, I wish I was like her. I wish I was like him. And, and, and sows that, that seed of discontent that we're not happy with where we are and what we have and we want more. That's the devil. That's the enemy. That's the evil one. Call him whatever you want. But it is he that is whispering to you to forsake the light and stay in the darkness. And we, we can get caught up trying to fight the bobs of this world. But when we do that, we forsake the evil that is cultivating a plan against us every minute of the day. Paul says it. Paul says it. He says the devil is scheming. And the enemy is sitting back and he is studying us. He is studying you. He's trying to figure out your weaknesses and he's trying to see how he can use those against you. He's trying to see where are you vulnerable? Oh, you don't got your armor on today. Let me get you. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let that arrow hit you so it could carry us off of our path. And you know what? He, he's not just studying us. He's not just studying coming from me and you. He's also looking at our families, and he's looking at our communities, and he's looking at our cities, and he's looking at our world, and he's coming for all of it. 
He wants to create fear and anxiety, and he wants lust to grow and for love to be suffocated by it all. He wants to kill everything that you love. He wants to steal everything that you have, and he wants to destroy everything of who you are. And I don't know about you, but I just can't sit back and let him come in here and take everything I have. I can't let him do that. I can't, I can't sit back and, and see him destroy the world that was created by one word. And I think I know you guys well enough too. I think I know that you are also not going to let the enemy come up here and, and wreak havoc in our city and in our families and in our communities. No, 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 we're going to stand up. That's why we're part of the underground, because we're going to stand up. And we're going to say, yo, we know it's not by our power and it's not by our might that's going to win this battle, but it's by the Spirit of God. Because a spiritual battle can only be won by the Spirit of God. So we cling on to him. And in his loving kindness, he gives us the spiritual armor to withstand every attack that comes our way. Every attack that comes our way. And I don't know about you, but then I, I feel amped up to do something. So I grab that belt and I put it on that belt of truth because it is the message of Jesus that holds everything together. And I, I take up that breastplate of righteousness that covers me with, with goodness and justice because it is through Jesus' death and resurrection that we have been justified and now are found through him. And I get ready, I get my feet ready for the gospel of peace. So when the enemy tries to attack me and tries to sweep me off my feet, I stand firm. And I hold on to that shield of faith because I believe in Jesus. Jesus is our hope. And he's the one that we place our, our trust in. And so I believe in him and I hold tight to that. And he will protect us from every fiery attack that's hurled at us. And my mind, oh, my mind, I need that helmet. Because that helmet of salvation protects me from the ways that the enemy wants to distort my thoughts and carry me away to captivate my mind. I hold on to that sword, which is the word of God, because it is quick and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And that sword, it can pierce through all things, and it can separate light from darkness like that. And prayer which I actually think is the last piece of armor that we are supposed to take up because prayer achieves everything that we cannot in our own human strength. Prayer moves the things that we can't push in the, out of the way and it illuminates the things that we cannot see we need to pray. The Lord, he is faithful to guide us and protect us through every battle. So we, we need to armor up underground. We need to armor up. And I don't know about you. I don't know if it's hard for you to grab onto that image of, of um, armor and Roman soldiers because we don't have them walking around our food court just getting some bourbon chicken. 
But in the first century church, they would have seen soldiers all the time. They would have been everywhere. And so they would have seen that helmet and they would have understand, you know, what Paul was trying to say. They would have, they know it had like those red feathers that came out the top and, and they would have seen the sword and they would have known how big it was. It was probably three to four feet and, and they would have known that the armor was heavy, maybe 70 to 100 pounds. And the breastplate being where most of that weight came from, but how the belt held it together. They would have known that. They would have seen that gigantic shield that once erected would be able to hide two or three soldiers behind it. They would have seen that. And it would have made sense to them. But I also think that they would have known that Paul was talking about something else. I think that they would have seen and heard that image And they would know that he was describing a different type of warrior. As soon as they heard that letter, I think that they would have known that Paul was describing a God who looked like a warrior in Isaiah 59. A God who came to earth because it was under siege and and no one was willing to fight. And this is what it says in that passage. It says, so justice is driven back. Righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looks and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So in his own arm, he achieved salvation for him and and his own righteousness sustained him. So he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And I think when Paul was talking about arm yourself up, I think they would have known that's what we're supposed to look like. They would have had that image in their mind. Because this was the warrior that Paul was calling the church to be. A church who saw evil in the world, who saw injustice in their nation, and the lack of truth and justice in their street. Paul was calling the church to see and be aware of all things all things that they couldn't see, and to stand up and to say, Lord, I'm here. The first, century, the first century church knew that Jesus had already won the war. They knew that he conquered grave in the hell. They knew that the faithful and true one was going to come back riding on a white horse and, and slash everything that wasn't right. They knew he was coming. So they were ready and they set their eyes on Jesus. So when he looked down again on the world that was under attack and he saw that injustice was being pushed back, he could no longer say, I see no one, because he would see his people. And even now, I I, I think Jesus continues to look at us, his people, his church, to see if we are willing to stand up, stand firm, put on the armor as we go and battle in our city. But he isn't calling you alone. 
He is calling all of us to put the armor of God on and to stand firm against the devil's scheme. He is calling us together. And I don't know if you noticed this, but this is the first time that I've read this passage and I realized that all of the armor is forward-fronting. It only protects the front. There's nothing that protects the back. Why? Because that is a part of your job too. You are supposed to protect each other's back. There was no need for back protection and armor because you had your brother and sister behind you. We had each other. We have each other. We will protect each other through the battle. Worship team, you can come up. I mean, I confess again, when I read this passage, I've always thought about it, about myself. My armor, my breastplate, my, hat, my helmet, my shoes, my sword, my shield, me standing on my ground firmly. I've always read it that way. Always. But I can't be an army of one <laughs> that does not exist. I think of Iron Man that was like, you know, and I really love superhero movies, just to let you know, a little side, side thing that you don't know about me, maybe. But he, that's how I feel, like I want to be Iron Man, but even Iron Man knows, you know what, I need the Avengers too. You can't do it by yourself, no matter how bad, no matter how bad your, your, your armor is. You need each other. But there are times that we do, though. There's times that we make this war about ourselves, and we choose to stand our own ground. And we'll move over here, and we'll, we'll, we'll let the world be about us, and the battle be about us and our lives. And we say, you know what, we don't really need these other people. We really don't need God right now. And it could be subtle, and it could be big, but we've all done it. And it turns something that was always supposed to be communal to something that's only and solely focused on your needs and your want. And you know what? Then you get to determine what you're going to fight for or not. When we get far, when people go far over here and, and stand their own ground, we kill people we were meant to stand by in the first place. When we go over here and we stand our own ground, we walk away from the, the army of God and we leave, we leave um, ourselves exposed to attack because there's nobody to watch your back. Have you felt that? People, friendships leave you and you feel that. Who got me? Who has me? When we do this, there's no room for Jesus or each other. That is why God is saying to stand. And I think he's saying we need to stand together because when we do, when we are eyeball to eyeball, we can envelop those who are weary, who have been on the front lines for far too long. We can, we can protect them and cover them with our shields or we can hold those up who are, who are tired because they're being attacked after attack or after attack. Or we can encourage those who want to shrink back because it is scary and it's too much. When we do it together, we reflect the light to the darkness. 
the darkness who wants to dim our shine. We shine bright together. We need to stand our ground together. You and I, we are called to that. So now that you're ready, who has your back? Who are the people in your life who who has you, who will stand in formation with you and fight against the unseen things of this world? And whose back do you have? Who are you holding up and locking arms with in the front lines of this battle? As you come to the table this morning, ask the Lord to check your heart and to to see if there's anything that you feel like you're unready to get you ready. If there's any ways that that there's a piece of armor that you haven't clung on to, that you don't believe, to to have him to show that to you, to, to ask him again to come and reveal himself to you. But even more so, I am calling you to commit to each other again. And maybe for some of you, it's recommitting to the people that you're already on the front lines with. And I'm saying, what I'm saying is today, grab them, hold them, look in their face and say, I got your back. I am with you. I am with you, Kathy. I am with you, Omar. I am with you. I see you, Nicole. I am with you. And maybe they're new people new people that are coming into your community that you need to make new commitments to because they don't know if you got their backs or not. And I say, go to them, text them, call them, email them, send them a letter. I don't care what you do. Let them know that you have them. I see you, Tammy. I see you, Melissa. I see you, Ryan. I have you. Let our army be one of commitment to each other. We're not going to fall back. We don't have to worry about back protection because you have me, right? Tell them. Tell them today. Tell them that you will armor up and withstand with them the battles that come so that at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, that we will stand that when it's all said and done and when all the attacks are over and when King Jesus comes riding on a horse, we can say we can still stand. We can't fight off the attacks of the enemy that comes in our lives and in our ministries and in our families and in our health and our relationships with Jesus without each other. We can't. Who do you need to commit to? Whose back do you have? Even as we come to the table, I think of all the disciples of Jesus who were like, yeah, I got you. This is the image that we end our service with today. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is my cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, and remember me. For whenever you eat and drink the bread and the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Underground, I got you. I got your back. I'm with you. I'm in this fight. Whose back do you have? The body and the blood of Jesus given for you.